Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I want to share with you a couple quick compliments that I think will encourage your hearts this morning from um, a recent visitor to our body. Uh, one com- compliment was, uh, to me, uh, this person was amazed that I made it all the way through Luke chapter 8 in one sermon. Um, I said, well, that's just because we took like 80 minutes to do it. Uh, would have been an amazing feat was to be to do it in like 30 minutes. Uh, but uh, that was one compliment. Uh, the other compliment was how loved they felt by our body. Um, and I just want to say to you all um, that love is, is not something that I think is pragmatic, just something that we do. It's something that comes from something inside of here. Um, and uh, if we know that we are deeply and truly loved by Christ, then we will deeply and truly love those around us. When we don't deeply and truly love those around us, it's because we don't understand how deeply and truly loved we are by Jesus. Uh, and uh, that is something that should change our, the way we behave and the way we act. And so I just want to encourage you with that. So um, as we work through Luke chapter 9, I want to encourage you this. I, uh, I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles... Make sure you follow along, or if you have your fake Bible, um, the one on electronic version, uh, you can uh, read along on that too. But it will help you, uh, particularly going through this Luke, but typically the way I teach anyways, uh, having your Bible just following right along really, I think, would help you um, pay attention, help you grasp what we're talking about, see it in the text, you know, uh, make notes in your Bible. It's not sacrilegious to write in it. It's okay. Um, you can write in it, Jesus and God will not be upset. Um, uh, matter of fact, they'd probably be happy that you're grasping the Word of God a little bit better, because uh, that could probably help. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, some people just really are weirded out about writing in their Bibles, but um, like, Jesus is alive, and He's all you need, and this is just a piece of paper, okay? So you can write in your Bible. Uh, it won't hurt anything. So, all right, Luke chapter 9. We've been asking this question, who do you say Jesus is? Like when you think about that question, who is Jesus? How do you answer that question? I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I do literally want you to think right now, when you think about who Jesus is, how do you answer that question? Maybe think about how you answered that question like seven weeks ago, or maybe even three weeks ago, and think about how you answer that question today. Hopefully that question, even if you had a right answer seven weeks ago or three weeks ago, it should still have changed at least a little bit. Maybe a more full answer or a richer answer or a more robust answer um, of who is Jesus. And we talk about coming into Luke with lots of baggage when it comes to who Jesus is. We come into Luke with maybe some of us 20 years, some of us 30 years, some of us 40 years or 50 years worth of tradition of who Jesus is. And some good, some wrong. Some helpful, some unhelpful. Some things we've been taught are right on and some things we've been taught maybe are not right on. And our goal in Luke has just been to 
to try and dismiss that baggage for a second, come to the text, what does the text say, and then let that text then interpret the baggage that we bring to the text. Does that make sense? How does that interpret our tradition? How does that, um, how does this uh, help us understand that which we've experienced, right? Because many of us want to use our experiences to define who Jesus is um, without letting the Word of God interpret our experiences. Because remember, the Word of God, this is the best way I can explain it, the Word of God is objective. Like, it's objective truth there for us to learn. Our experiences and the way we interpret those experiences are subjective. So there's lots of room for us to misunderstand what's going on in our experiences. Uh, it doesn't mean our experiences aren't real. It just means the way we understand them. So we need to use the Word of God, which is objective, and he- let that help us understand how we experience. Maybe we experienced a bad time, and, and so because of that bad time, we say, now Jesus doesn't love me as much as I thought that He loved me. Well, how does the Bible help us understand that suffering? And that's one thing we're going to talk about today. So if you didn't have the Word of God to guide your understanding of that time of suffering, then your picture then of Jesus that's based upon that experience could lead you to believe something wrong about Jesus instead of something that's gloriously true about Him. And so... I want to encourage you. I know this is really hard. Every time we come to the text, we really need to set aside and go, what is it that I'm trying to bring to the text and force it upon it? So what are my experiences? What is it that I've believed before and trying to force that into the text versus just let the text speak for itself and then let that help you understand the things that you've experienced or previously believed. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Okay. So who do you say Jesus is? Is he a good man? A good teacher? Is he your savior? Is he just a friend? Is he a model for a life of morality? Is he just, is he just a model for life? Like, do we look at Jesus and go, well, he's just someone for me to emulate? Is that who Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? So with that asked, and that premise set, let's start Luke chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read through 6. It says this, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. All right. We're going to fly right through here. Here we see basically a preview of the very mission and rejection of that mission that Jesus himself will proceed or Jesus himself will eventually experience as well. This mission that Christ will be on of continuing to proclaim the gospel will then begin to face rejection. And so we see this. Jesus sends out the twelve to go basically bear witness for him and to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he talks about them, they will be rejected. 
Notice in verse 5, this rejection. One, it says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So basically what Jesus is saying, once they've made an attempt to proclaim the gospel, if they're rejected, they're to shake the dust off of their feet and, and move on. It's interesting because Scripture seems to give a balance of perseverance in delivering the gospel and also going to those who are hungry for the gospel. Like, so this does not, this text, because we have to view this text in a broader context. And the broader context of the Bible, we do not simply see people proclaiming the gospel and when they're rejected, they just leave immediately and walk away. This is the case here. But this is not the case in other places. You have people like the prophet Jeremiah who labored for like 40 years, never saw anybody begin to follow Christ. Was rejected for years and years, but continued to work, continued to, to, uh, to proclaim among them. So this is not the case. This is not setting up for us. Uh, well, when you go to work, you tell your neighbor that if he doesn't believe in Jesus, he's going to hell. And when he rejects you, you just walk away and go, well, you know, that's just that. Like, that's not, that's not what this text is teaching us. I think if you, again, this direction from Jesus was given to a people in a very specific time, in a very specific place. The time and place of this was the initial outgoing, the initial moving forward of Jesus' ministry and being proclaimed particularly by other people. So here is the proclamation of Jesus and who He is is beginning to go forward, and this is the very initial stage of that. And I think that is what provides the context for Jesus to say, if they reject you, just move on. Don't stay there for 30 years, just move on. This is the initial, this is kind of the initial going out of who Jesus is. So here I think the immediate responsiveness is the goal you know, the immediate responsiveness of the people is the goal because of it being in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The word's beginning to go out. He also, wants, he also though, warns them of rejection. I want to make that note as well. That up until this point, for the most part, Jesus has been very well liked. I mean, have you guys noticed that? I mean, eight chapters, and Jesus has been doing miracles, and people are like flocking to see Jesus. And now Jesus says, and I mean, just a little bit of like being roughed up by the Pharisees, but that's just very, very minimal. Uh, and then now he's saying, you're going to be rejected. Shake off, shake the dust off your feet and move on. So just notice that Jesus tells them here, go where the soil is soft, but also be ready for rejection. Like it's going to come. So. We just need to keep this in mind as we work through the rest of the text. That Jesus is sending them out. This is the kind of the beginning. He sends them to soft soil, but recognize that there's going to be rejection. All right, so they're going to initially, this is the initial beginnings of proclaiming Jesus by the disciples here in Luke chapter 9. So now as we work through the rest of the text, there's going to be three pivotal points in this text. And he's actually, these three pivotal points in, the, in chapter 9 serve as huge pivots for the rest of the book of Luke. 
like the path begins to change. Like the picture after chapter 9 will begin to change drastically. And Jesus' goal, Jesus' plan, Jesus' ministry is going to change now drastically as we progress through chapter 9 and then for the rest of the book of Luke. The first pivotal point that we see, no, pivotal point number one, is Peter's confession. Now, I want to help you get the most out of today's lesson. I typically like to write points, when possible, from the text for you to write down that are imperative in nature. Like as in they give you like a command, something to do, something to practice, something to believe. Uh, not so much the case this time. It's a lot harder, I think, with this text to do that. So what we have to do is we're going to look at more of a, like an indicative statement. So this is something that's indicating something about Jesus or his ministry. So what we have to do is we have to understand that indicative statement or that, that comment. And then understand, then we have to think through how do we live in light of that comment. So there's going to be application all throughout here, but the application from the text is not going to be your main points from the sermon. So I'm going to try and help you see those application points as we work through the text, but I just want you to be aware of that so that you can take um, good notes and so that hopefully your life can be changed from this text. So with that said, Peter's confession, this is the first pivotal point. I understand how has Peter, just think through real quickly in your mind, Luke 1 through 8, what have the disciples been saying about Jesus, or what have they not been saying about Jesus, or what have they been failing to understand? That's the backdrop that we come in to chapter 9, verse 7 here. Herod is perplexed about who Jesus is. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. This is, of course, John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. This is the prophet Elijah. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I am hearing such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod, real quick, was clearly being threatened, or so he felt threatened, by the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, he had already beheaded John the Baptist. I mean, understand the situation. John the Baptist comes and says, repent, like Jesus is coming. And Herod responds by having his head chopped off. And so now Herod's going, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The same question that was asked in chapter 8 by the disciples in the boat. Who is this? Who is this that even calms the storms and commands the wind? Who is this? And now we have Herod asking the same question. Who is this? Now, let me help us as we seek to understand particularly like um, these narratives. Sometimes your section headings are not helpful. Okay? Now, I think the titles here are helpful, but where they break it up, like if you were to just to read 7 through 9 and you call it a day, like you're going to miss something, okay? Because what happens is Luke gives us the answer to who Jesus is in the next section. So if you just stopped reading there, you go, okay, you know, Herod's crazy and wants to kill Jesus, and who is Jesus? That's what he's asking. But then we don't, if we don't read on, we don't know that Luke 
gives us that answer. He gives us the answer, but he gives us the answer by via demonstration. So Jesus is going to demonstrate who he is or demonstrate the answer to the question that Herod's asking, who is Jesus? It's very similar because he's been doing this all along, right? Like he's been demonstrating who he is from the very beginning. So, let's look at this next story. Verse 10. Jesus feeds the 5,000. It says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them, withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Or Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision, provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set, set disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now, this is once again a case where knowing the Old Testament is really helpful. Think about this. These Jews, these Israelites, followed Jesus out to a desolate place. They were in need of food, and what happens? Jesus supernaturally feeds them. What does that sound like? Sounds like the nation of Israel in the wilderness and God feeding them manna from heaven. Does it not? Yeah. So how is Jesus answering the question via demonstration about who he is? He's saying, by demonstration, I am God. The one you saw in the Old Testament, carrying out the will of the Father and feeding the people, that was me. And here I am today, in the flesh, doing the exact same thing I did back then. Israelites, desolate place, a.k.a. wilderness, need food. Jesus supernaturally feeds them bread from heaven. See the parallel. Jesus is answering via demonstration, this is who I am. The story fundamentally shows us who Jesus is. This is not fundamentally a story about having compassion and taking care and feeding people. That's not what this passage is about. It's about who is Jesus. And supernaturally here he feeds them. The story fundamentally shows us who he is. God did it in the Old Testament. And just like in the boat... In the middle of the storm, and Jesus calms the storm. He's displaying the same thing in the Old Testament. It's the same picture here that's being painted. So if Jesus is God, 
So here's a kind of a, a small point of application. If Jesus is God and God provides for his people here supernaturally, how do you live in light of the goodness and the providence of God? How do you live in light of the goodness and the providence of God? So God is good to take care of his people, and God provides for his people even supernaturally. How do you live in light of the goodness and the providence of God? Or, or do you live thinking that God isn't good or that he isn't going to provide? Do you worry as if he's not going to provide? Or do you live in the freedom and the lack of stress knowing that he will provide? Now, he may make you starve for a little while to realize your laziness, right? But he's providing, okay? He's actually providing for you there in that situation more than you probably realize. Do you believe that God is good and that he's providential? All right. So now, we've just been given a visual proclamation, if you will, like a visual display of Jesus' deity. Now we'll see Peter give a verbal proclamation or a verbal display of who Jesus is and that he is God. So verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, this is pivotal point number one. Jesus answered, or Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Peter was literally saying, you are the Messiah of God. You are the Messiah, the the, the Savior that has come. Now think about this. What has happened so far? Eight chapters. And there's been a lot of life that's happened in eight chapters in Jesus' ministry. A lot. And they still have not gotten it. And finally, Jesus says to Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter begins to get it. He begins to see who Jesus is. See, Jesus was fulfilling the role of the Messiah, but he was not using terms. It was more, Jesus was using demonstrations of his life. Up until this point, Jesus had just been displaying it, like who he was as the Messiah, and now his disciples finally grasp it, and this will now set in motion the chain of events leading towards the cross. And so Jesus is discipling these guys. They're not getting it yet. They finally, something clicks. And then they begin working towards the cross. Something changes here, and they begin to move. So the initial group of disciples, the one who would begin the church, are finally starting to understand who Jesus is. Jesus needed them, though, and I think this is part of Jesus' plan here. He needed them to forget their false expectations of a Savior, because remember, they were Jews as well. So they had these expectations of what the Savior would look like particularly one that would come reigning in judgment and would overthrow the Romans and take control and establish the physical kingdom, not knowing that all that was pointing first to a spiritual kingdom to be followed by a physical kingdom. And he needed them to forget who they thought, their expectations, right? Like their baggage they're bringing to the table. He needed them to forget that and to see who he was. 
and to accept him for what he really came to do. Sounds very similar to us, doesn't it? Like we want to say, this is what I expect Jesus to be. I expect him to be this kind of savior, this kind of person, instead of letting God himself through the text reveal to us who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because see, here they were expecting a physical king, but instead Jesus first came to suffer and die. And now that the disciples are seeing this about Christ, Jesus goes on to explain more fully what's going to happen. So the question is this, how many of us have been a follower of Jesus based upon our expectations of Him versus His plan or God's revealing of who He is. Let me give you some examples. Maybe we follow a Jesus who really isn't sovereign, so our expectations is not that He is completely sovereign. So that's why we live in fear of tomorrow. So that's an expectation of Jesus that He's only partially sovereign and control, and so then we live like we have to fear tomorrow, or maybe we live like we have to be in control. Do we believe that He's sovereign? We have a different expectation of who Jesus is. Maybe we follow a Jesus who isn't the glorious one, so that is why we fear man more than Him. Maybe our expectations is that He's just a good person. Maybe we follow a Jesus who we think is a genie in a bottle, so we just simply call on Him when we need something. Maybe our expectation of Jesus is that he would deliver us from all suffering. So when we're not delivered from suffering, then we, we don't understand. Well, this ain't the Jesus that I thought of. Or maybe we follow a Jesus that we thought we can pull off a shelf once a week and put him back on that shelf for the rest of the week. Maybe that's the expectations that we have. So the question is, who is Jesus claiming to be here? Who is he displaying himself to be here, and then how do we live believing that? Because if he is sovereign and in control, stop trying to be in control. I'm not saying that you just let everything step back and have a free-for-all, right? We can be a good steward. But I'm saying where it begins to rob your joy, you begin to trust in your own ability more than God's. You begin to think that you have the better plan than God. That's where we're entering into sin. Trust is in control, and we can talk about the other ones, but let's go on. Verse 21. So now, so Peter just said who he thought Jesus was. And Jesus goes on. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Interesting. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Wow. Like, (laughs) talk about a mouthful. Talk about this, wow. Like, really? So, you're the Christ and Messiah, and this is what's going to happen. This is what Jesus says. He told them what would happen, that he would be killed, and then he'd be raised. And now Jesus is showing Peter the real meaning of what he had just said. Right? So Peter's beginning to understand, what is it, who is this person? Oh, he's Jesus. This is the Messiah of God. This is the Christ of God. And then Jesus goes on to say, this is what the Messiah of God or the Messiah means. It means he's going to suffer. It means he's going to pay a price, and then he's going to be raised from the dead. This is what that means, Peter. This is what that means. So with the disciples beginning to know who Jesus Jesus really was, now his journey towards Jerusalem will begin. He is going to teach now as we travel towards Jerusalem, 
and the cross. He's going to now begin to teach his disciples how to follow this person that he's been displaying. Right? Make sense? So he's been displaying that he is Christ. He's the Messiah. Now he's going to begin to display and teach and instruct on how to live that, how to follow him. And he's going to teach this as they make their way to Jerusalem. So, verse 23. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? This is a grand question, right? I mean, this is a question we should be asking like every day. What does it mean to follow Jesus? If we're not concerned about that question, then the Holy Spirit may not reside in our heart. Or if we've not considered that question before today, maybe the Holy Spirit is just now beginning to call your heart to God. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone, listen to these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We don't have time to dive into all the works of this passage and all the points of this passage, but first thing I just want to point out to you, we've come so, become so accustomed to looking at the cross. How many of you guys grew up in churches where the cross was like on the backdrop of like, you weren't a church unless you had like a, Jesus cross, right, on the back of the thing, um, like right there, plastered, right like that. No, that's, the, that's actually a, a, a medical symbol. So anyways, what, how many of you grew up like the cross right there, right? Uh, I did. Uh, every one of them had one of those. Uh, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but here's my point. We've become so accustomed to the cross. I want us to think about this. this is, Jesus wasn't saying, go get your necklace with your cute cross on it, and make sure you have that with you everywhere you go. That's not what Jesus was saying. My wife laughed. She thought it was funny. Uh, like, that's, that was not his point. Yeah, like, doesn't that stink? Well, we thought we were going to get it off easy, right? That's not what he meant. Like, the cross was not religious and certainly did not bring tears like the tears they bring to our eyes when we think of the cross. The cross, during that time, did not bring up sentimental joy. Right? The cross, during that time, brought up tears of sorrow and shame and agony and pain and oppression even. Like, that's what the cross brought up. So when Jesus says to them... You know, hey, like they weren't planning now to go down to the family Christian bookstore and buy their cross and put it in their pocket. Like they were going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we were cool with healing people, feeding lots of people, maybe even being a little rejected by people after we just, you know, healed a bunch of people. But you're telling me 
that not only have you not come to cast judgment on these people, but you've come to die, and now you're asking us to do the same thing with you? Like, no way. Like, that's crazy. Old man, you've gone too far, all right? Even though he was like 31, 32. Like, no way. But have we ever considered, like, and I don't know some of us in here have, what it means, like, what, I think what Christ is, when he's talking about following him and taking up this cross, we have to ask this question, what does it mean, like, what was the state of mind of the person who was carrying their cross on the way? Like, were they worried about what type of donut they were going to get at Krispy Kreme the next day? Were they worried about whether or not McDonald's was going to run out of French fries? Like, no. They were worried about none of that for their plans, their dreams, what they wanted in life was done. Like, they were on their way to their death. Their plans, their dreams, their desires, their comforts were all gone. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's telling us that if we want to be followers of Him, we're carrying a cross. And what that means is that our plans, our desires, our dreams are all dead. You know, typically what that looks like practically today, that when the world or the people outside of the body of Christ see people who are genuinely living this, they think they're crazy. Now this doesn't look like people who are dead to their dreams, dead to their desires, doesn't mean they go out and, and picket, you know, like, like uh, soldiers' funerals and crazy crap like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a life that displays the gospel, that would understand God's word and then display him to this world. So instead of being alive to our dreams, what Christ is telling his disciples is that if they want to be a follower of his, they must be alive to his dreams, his plans, his direction for their life. Right? Because we're no longer Lord of our lives. He is. And if you would believe in me, you would understand that the only one worthy to be Lord of anybody's life is Jesus, not us. And so he's saying, pick up your cross. You're dead to this world. You're alive to me. You're dead to Christ. Dead to this world. We're alive to Christ. And what's interesting, and we don't have time to jump into all this, but he says that, um, uh, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I think Christ is saying, is saying just the opposite of what this world says. The world says, go get, 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 get. Like, get all that you can. Have all the greatness that you can. And Jesus says, look, if you're willing to lose all of that, even your life, look at what you gain. So to those who are not followers of Jesus, he is saying, like, all of that that the world has to offer is nothing compared to what I have to offer. And then for those who are followers of Christ, who are striving to follow after Him, like, why do we keep wanting what's in the world? Why do we keep wanting our plans and, our, and not and forsaking His? He's much better at being Lord than you or I am. So if you're a believer, let me ask you this question. 
Do you experience the tension every day trying to worship your plans and desires versus Christ? Anybody else here face that tension like every day, right? Like, I want this, but no, I know Jesus wants this. Dang it, right? You know, help me understand that his is much better than mine, right? Like, that's hard, but it's a tension, and you should feel that tension every day. If you're an unbeliever, maybe just getting to know Christianity for the first time, or maybe beginning to experience it in a new way for the first time, do you see the tension that the text is talking about here? Jesus is telling us the opposite that the world, he says, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you're willing to give up your life for his name, you will win it all. That's what he's saying to us. So, whether you're a believer or not a believer, the next question is, what are you working to gain? What do you desire more than Jesus? Financial success, acceptance by someone else, approval of another person, security, comfort, lack of stress. You have all you need in Christ. All that you need. It was interesting, I was listening to a kind of a sermon slash lesson on my way out to spend some time in the woods in God, the rest of God's creation beyond pavement and blacktop. Uh, and uh, on my way out there, like I was, as I was listening to, it was something similar to this, like why am I trying to find, like, find our approval in God, find my satisfaction in Him. And then I was faced with kind of that like same thing just a few hours later where I was having to work through this in my own heart. Um, and it was like, man, like, wow, this just creeps in in such a crazy place. So, pivotal point number one, Peter's confession. Pivotal point number two, the transfiguration. The transfigure, what? The transfiguration. All right. Luke 9, verse 28. Now, about 80 days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And as, these sayings, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus, found, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So, God announces here that Jesus is his son. They are talking about Jesus' death or departure. This is what's going on. Talking about Jesus' departure. This is essential to God's plan. But think about this account. Think about the symbolism, the cloud. Equals the presence of God. Just like the cloud on Mount Sinai with Moses and the giving of the law. Again, we have another demonstration of who Jesus is. And think about Moses. What happens? The Bible talks about how his face changed from his spending time with God. 
Jesus' face here is changed. And then they instruct him to listen. God instructs them to listen to Jesus. God, so what happens here is God affirms, think about this, God affirms the identity of Jesus. This is my son, my chosen one. And then he instructs them on how to respond in light of his identity. This is my son, listen to him. This is my son, listen to him. Let's move on, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, okay, think about this, Moses, changed face, coming down from the mountain, what happens in that story? Think about that as we are working through this text. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all, listen to this, and all were astonished at what Jesus had done. They were astonished at the majesty of God. All right, so once again, see the parallels. Moses come down from Mount Sinai. Think about this. After meeting with God, what's he come down to? The people worshiping a golden calf. The sin of the people. Here Jesus comes down from, from the mountain and he sees a story filled with the effects of sin. Same, similar thing. The boy is being beaten by these demons. The disciples couldn't do anything about it. Jesus says, like, where is the faith? Now, the question I think, uh, this is a light question. I don't, he doesn't answer it here, but what is the lack of faith Jesus is referring to? I don't know. It could be the lack of the disciples' faith. So they weren't able to heal him. But I don't know what it is. Nevertheless, Jesus heals the boy. I think Jesus is simply publicizing, like proclaiming the lack of faith and the fact that he is now here and going to do something about this. But either way, he talks about this lack of faith, this sin that he's come to eradicate. So notice the comment here by Luke in 9 verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So what Luke is accounting, is, or Luke is recounting, is that the people understood what Jesus had done, just did, as a work of God. Not as a work of a good teacher. Not the work of just some good person for us to follow. But as the work of God. That's who they recognized it to be. Jesus performed this gracious and kind miracle. The greatness of God was displayed. Let's continue on in the text. Verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So Jesus would be betrayed, right? Jesus would be betrayed, particularly by one of his disciples. But the disciples were not understanding this. They didn't get it. It seems as though... They have the ability to hear what they want to hear and not hear what they don't want to hear. Like, again, they're probably struggling to see that he would be a Messiah that would come to suffer versus a Messiah that would come to reign judgment and to establish a new kingdom. 
But think about it. I mean, the, it seems that the disciples have the ability to hear what they want to hear and not hear what they don't want to hear. But you find yourself only hearing what you want to hear. Uh, I think we all do. All right, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, some people use this passage to understand that you know, we should accept a two-year-old who says, I love Jesus, and say that they're saved. Uh, I don't think that's Jesus' point here. Um, he's saying if you want to follow Jesus, I think his point here is that you have to humble yourself. That you welcome the least of these. See, the thing is, is like when we view this passage, we view it like the Jesus storybook stuff where we have the cute little children like that they're brought up next to Jesus and oh, and we love our children and they're all like so perfect and like this is what Jesus is saying is that like that, that I, I have to understand children during this culture, during this time, uh, were not like that well thought of. They were thought of as like little terrors, if you will. Like, they were not like these cute little clean things that we just love to be around. So Jesus, like, they were not, let's, let's put it this way. When we think of like how women were treated during this culture in this time, they were not regarded that highly of. Like, they were not thought that highly of. It was men. The same thing with children. Children were not regarded as we regard children today. They were more disposable, if you will. They were not cared for. Like, that's why we see Jesus so concerned about the widows, the orphans, the children. In this case, it's the same thing. The least of these. That's the point. The least of these. You humble yourself. As Christians, we care about everyone because everyone's made in the image of God. And so he is saying, like, these are the people, they're made in the image of God, and we need to humble ourselves like them. That's who is the greatest, is the one who is humble. So, but consider though, real quick, just a quick comment. Like, he just told them, like, he's going to die and be betrayed, and now these blabbering fools are worried about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. Um, just a thought for us. Do we do anything similar, right? Jesus saying, I died for you. What are you concerned about in response to that? Are you concerned about living your life then for Him? Or are you concerned about your plans blabbering on like the disciples did here? Verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Alright, verse 49. We learn that we are to welcome all those who follow Christ. And verse 50 says, we do not stop him. Whoever is not against you is for you. Now real quick, I think what Jesus is saying is that uh, that like in our context, how I think this would be applied is if they're preaching the gospel and doctrine that follows from the gospel like, we need to celebrate the work that God's doing there. 
if they're not preaching the gospel, nor the doctrine that follows the gospel, then they're against him. So I think what Jesus ultimately, like the ultimate thing Jesus is saying here, is that there is no middle ground. Like you're either for me, or you're against me. So he's not saying you either understand the Bible 100% correct, but he's saying that you've got the gospel, you're proclaiming him, and so there is a clear, and I, I don't know like, like, precisely where that line is drawn, but there is a point at which you cross over and you're not for Jesus. You're against Jesus. So I think a very clear line is salvation through anything else other than Jesus or Jesus plus anything else, clearly according to the Word of God, I think, would be a line. Like, they are not for Jesus. They're against Jesus. So, in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. Okay, well, no, that, that's not Jesus. There's nowhere it says that you have to speak in tongues to, to be a follower of Jesus. Right? So, or Jesus plus communion. If you don't take communion, that now you're going to go to hell. That's, that's not, it's not Jesus plus some physical action that we do here. So, Jesus is saying, though, but those who are for me, we should support, we should be in favor of. And then listen to the nature of true greatness. The greatest person to ever walk this earth was the one who died. Does that look like true greatness, like the emperor who would reign, you know, and take over the world? Is that what true greatness looks like according to Christ here? No. Maybe that should redefine our idea of greatness. Success. What's it mean to be great? What's it mean to be successful? What greatness are you giving your life for? Just think about these things. This is a good applicational question. What greatness are you giving your life for? Pivotal point number three. <clears throat> turning to Jerusalem. So at this point, turning to Jerusalem, this pivotal point number three. At this point, Jesus' identity is pretty clear. Like God has even said, this is my son. Like, who Jesus is, is good. There will be very little teaching about who he is now going forward. So if you're tired of the question, who is Jesus? All right, hopefully you've gotten the answer to that. Because now we're going to move forward. Now there will be more teaching on how to follow Jesus. How we can be true disciples of Jesus. So that, again, the early years of Jesus were easy. Healing people. The crowds liked Him. Now all this will begin to change. So the disciples recognize who Jesus is, and now we're going to start moving towards the cross. Now it's time for Jesus to turn His face and the face of His disciples towards the ultimate mission at hand. And that was, again, the cross. Verse 51. So now we're headed towards Jerusalem. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Now, really quick, 
Jesus was resolutely set, headed towards Jerusalem. Again, a physical turning point in Luke's gospel. With Peter's confession, now Jesus is on his way to the cross. And we have this teaching. But the easiest way to get to Jerusalem from where Jesus was, was through this village called Samaria. Now, what you, don't, what you need to know is that the Samaritans didn't get along with the Jews um, for various reasons. But the Samaritans traditionally refused to shelter people on their way to Jerusalem because of their disregard for them. They disliked them. And Jesus, though, listen to what his disciples say. His disciples say, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Like, what's Jesus do? He rebukes them. I think he rebukes them because they were self-righteous as if Jesus could not call down the same judgment on them. I mean, think about this. So, well, we've got this together. God, you want us to call judgment down on them? As if Jesus couldn't rain judgment down on the disciples themselves. I think that's why Jesus rebukes them. And think this, the disciples here, this is what a heart does that doesn't know the extent of its own evil. This is what a heart does or says that doesn't know the extent of its own evil. So how do we follow Jesus? Again, in the same chapter, we have another answer to this question. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow looks back. Is, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is he saying here? Like, this, is not a, this is not a parable. Like, this is, this, Jesus is being very straightforward here. Jesus makes it more clear here that to follow him, and I think this would be something to write down, to follow him requires priority and perseverance in that priority. It requires priority and perseverance in that priority. I mean, Jesus and his followers don't even have a place to lay their head. What he's saying is, I'm on mission here, and this is my priority. Then, verse 60 says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, that's a pretty big deal even today. I mean, family obligations during this time were incredibly important. I mean, for us, you know, someone passes away, um, usually a funeral, graveside, you know, one day, bang, 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 you're done, right? During this day, it was like a week-long process. Like, this took a long time. So even today, it's a big deal. Back then, it would have been an even bigger deal. And what Jesus is saying, I mean, you think Jesus is just kidding around here? You think he's saying that the priority of following him is, you know, just make it quick. 
when it comes to burying your dead, instead of five days or ten days, like, make it two. What's he say? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. I'm sorry, leave the dead, yeah, to bury their own dead. This is what he said. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Like, he's saying this is a priority. Following me is important. Following Jesus was more important than social obligations or family obligations or social conventions, if you will. Something that the society had created, that this week-long or two-week-long thing, this, this societal convention, he's saying following me is more important than that. He was demanding that he be the priority of the life. Then then think about verse 62. It says, think about this plowing. He says, no one who plows sets his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Think about this. Has, has anybody ever put their hand to the plow? Anybody? Have you? Right, We've got one person. Right? All right. If you put your hand to the plow and you turn around, maybe, maybe another example would be for us. Uh, if you put your hand on the steering wheel of your car and you turn around and keep looking backward, What's the chances of that car going straight? Like zero. Like you're going to start going one way or the other. That's his point. His point is like when you put your hand to the plow and begin to look back, you don't get straight rows. You get crooked rows. Again, your priority, your perseverance in following him. You must keep your eye on following him. So what do you say? This perseverance to follow him. So the question that we must ask is, how does this apply to our lives? I would say that at the very least, if Jesus gave his life for the body of Christ, that is more important than social conventions and family obligations for us to be committed to that which he died for. So at the very least, our commitment to the body, to gathering with the body, to sacrificing for the body, if Jesus gave his life for that, then it at the very least is more important than family obligations and social conventions. But how about living your life as the church throughout the rest of the week? Because see, here's, here's the thing. Many of us, the church is something we go to and not something we are. Right? So if, if church is something you go to, then church is something you can leave. But if the church is something you are, then the church is how you live, right? So when we talk about being committed to the body, we don't talk about just your commitment to Sunday morning, but your commitment to the body. So how does your living for Christ as the church throughout the week, how does it display, how does that display your priority of following Jesus Versus family obligations and social conventions and whatever other thing that we might want. That's the question. I would encourage you to reflect on that this week. So, overall, we see three turning points. Peter's confession. And in Peter's confession, the disciples are starting to get it. It's starting to click. The transfiguration, we see God's affirmation and Jesus' turn towards the cross. And then... The turning towards Jerusalem begins the journey to the cross. Jesus is on his way. And during this time, he's going to be talking about what it means to follow him.
So I ask you the question again, right? And we're almost done. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you believe Jesus is God, as he is displayed here in these words, you will be able to do nothing but lay down your life and follow him. Okay? If you believe Jesus to be anything shy of God and what is displayed here in these words, then your own desires and plans are just as worthy to be worshipped and you will continue down that path. Let me say that again. If you believe Jesus is God as He is displayed in these words, then you will be able to do nothing but lay down your life and follow Him. If you believe Jesus to be anything shy of what He claims to be in these words, then your plans, your desires are just as worthy of worship and you will continue down that path. So who is Jesus? If you believe Him to be God, like, then we, we must follow Him. But who is Jesus? And I want to encourage you, if you've never talked to anyone about that, if you've never, like, what does it mean to follow Christ and, and to repent and place faith in Jesus? Um, I just want to encourage you, you can talk to me, you can talk to Sarah, Rusty, there's a number of different people in here, but I just want to encourage us all to consider that. Have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ? Like, do we see the gloriousness of God and what He did? Like, are we beginning to see? Like, you don't have to understand all of that, but understanding that He died on the cross for us to redeem us. I just want to encourage you, you talk to someone if you've not done that. If you are a follower of Jesus, here's my question to you as we close. Are you awestruck by Christ? Like when you think of Christ and we think of what we just talked about with Christ, does it put you at all? Like are you standing with awe of who He is? Do you follow Jesus as if He were God, forsaking your desires and picking up His? Or are you still all struck with your own ability and your own doings? Or are you all struck with His? And Christian, I want to, to just to tell you, like, your abilities fail miserably compared to His. But His are great and His are grand. Place them in His. Let us forsake our plans, our greatness, our desires, and follow Him. For He is God. I want to pray for us, and we're going to worship in response to the word. Um, so I want to encourage you to think about these words as we pray and worship. Father, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Father, um, um, I just pray that both those who are followers of Christ and those who are just kind of checking these things out, Father, I pray that you would you would shine the light of Christ on them in such a way that they can't help but walk away a changed person. That they would see your son Jesus for who he is. That he's not just a good person to follow. He's not just moral. That he's not just some 
important person in the Bible, but that he's God. And that one day, as we study Luke, one of these days, as we work through this book, he will present his life as a sacrifice on the cross. He will die for our sins. He will pay that price. And that if we place our faith in his work on the cross and who he is, that we will be redeemed. That our relationship with God will be restored. So Father, I pray if there's anyone who has never been redeemed by Jesus Christ, that they would speak to someone today after service, or even now. Father, we thank you so much. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with us as we sing?